Please turn with me in Scripture now to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have provided for us the words of this man in hell. And Lord, you have given to us something that you declare is even more important, more significant than were a man to be raised from the dead. The very word of God, inspired and inerrant, it is here before us. And how we pray, Lord, that you would enable us to receive it 
fully and completely in the way in which this, this rich man would have desired even for his family to have received it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We come now to the story of Lazarus and the rich man. I say story because the question as to whether we should call it a parable is, is a live question. And in some respects, we have to say it is like a parable. It begins with almost the exact same words as the parable of the shrewd steward in the beginning of this chapter, chapter 16. Then there was a certain rich man. And here the certain rich man, likewise, There is a certain rich man, no name given either to him or to his steward. But here on the other hand, the poor man does have a name. And that's a big difference, actually. There's not a single parable that has any proper name whatsoever. And so all the the ones that we can be certain or or sure that they're, they're parables, we don't find anybody's name. But here, the poor man is not just a certain poor man. He has a name, and his name is Lazarus. And I think even more importantly than that, uh, in, in parables, proper parables, they use some sort of ordinary element of life, you know, uh, the seeds and of farming and of cows and of sheep and of things that happen to sheep and, and shepherds and all the rest of it. Those are parables, ordinary things that illustrate the spiritual teaching that Jesus is trying to get across. Well, here we are talking about something that is spiritual and eternal. It's all completely played out to the, to the uttermost. Although it also is seeking to reinforce what Jesus has been teaching. Now, what is it that he has been teaching? What is it that he's seeking to reinforce by this story? Which may actually be uh, more than a parable. It may just actually be events that have happened or it may be a parable. In any case, it's on the lips of of the living God, so we we understand it in its perfect truth. Well, what is it that he's been teaching that he wants to reiterate and reinforce? Well, you recall what he had said in verse 13, that no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Okay, that's the teaching. Teaching it to his disciples. He's expecting his disciples to receive it. But you know what happens? The Pharisees, who are overhearing these things, who happen to be really ensnared by them, who happen to be lovers of money, you want to know what their actual religion was. They make a show of, of the, the law of God, but their, their real heart is bowing down to God money. And they, he, they hear these things, and they deride him. They start making fun of him. They can't stand it. And that's what you do when you hear a message that you don't like. You deride it. But he's not done with them, you see. After he speaks further to them in the little section right before this, the story of, rich man, of Lazarus and the rich man, he speaks to them in these ways. He says, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He takes it up here to this level. But he's not done with them. He doesn't just leave it there, but he says, Let me tell you something. Let me give you an illustration. I know of a certain rich man. I know of a certain poor man as well. I know of what happened to them in eternity. And let me explain the story to you. So you have an illustration of what it looks like when somebody tries to have two masters and fails because they will. 
They will. They may have been laughing then, but they're not going to be laughing in eternity. And Jesus wants them to be very clear. You think you can have two masters. You think you can have divided loyalties. This thing over here in this world and also God. But Jesus wants you to understand what the end of those things are. And we'll see what the rich man is saying in hell. Well, that's the topic. Lessons from Lazarus and the rich man. That's pretty simple. That's the, we're trying to get some lessons because we don't often hear words straight from somebody who is in eternity, do we? We don't have many of them. We have a handful of things that are, are said in, in, in heaven. Uh, we have a handful of things that are said by the saints in heaven, but we have nothing else that is ever on the lips of anyone in hell. And here is a, you, you say, what would he say? What would he say? He's saying it to us today. We get to hear these things. We get to take some lessons from the words of this man. All right, so what are the lessons from Lazarus and the rich man? There are just three. First, this life has good things and bad. Okay. Second, hell is much better. Sorry, heaven is much better. And third, hell is much worse. Well, first of all, this life truly has both good things and bad, okay? Sometimes we find this confusing, and, and we, we wonder what is the message that we should get from it. Well, there is no particular message as to regard that there is both good things and there are bad. This is a plain fact of life. In verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. He's rich. He's got the fine clothes and he's got the wonderful food all the time. And Abraham himself sums it up when he said that the rich man had good things in this life. It's true. The curse is pervasive. After the fall of man, there is the curse in this world and bad things happen. But that does not mean it's total. God in his goodness still gives all sorts of reminders of his good things. He's the giver of every good gift. And there are lots of very good things to be found even in this world. But there are also bad things. In verse 20, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores who was laid at his gate. Right? He was in extreme poverty. Someone had to, uh, and, and, and to add to it, of course, he had this terrible chronic disease. He had to be laid at the gate. He obviously couldn't move around. Beyond being laid at the gate, he had all these, these sores. It was a terrible, terrible situation. Reminds you of what happened to Job when the devil was really, really after him. Gave him some terrible disease in which he was covered head to, to foot. By these terrible sores. There is pain in every part of his body. His body has become not an instrument of joy and of happiness, but of, of suffering. And so there he was. Real suffering. Summarized by Abraham as evil things. He were, these were not good. We do not need to sugarcoat them. We don't need to say, well, it wasn't so bad. No, it was so bad. It was terrible for this man. And what we say about it is... There are both good things and bad things in this world. Those things are both true. And, and sometimes, sometimes people take the wrong lessons from either of those things. They look only at the bad things and say there is no God. Or they look only at the good things and they say there is no judgment. Of course, neither of those things are true. This is what happens in this world. It is not conclusive. 
And we don't know the real end of these things until we get to the next. We do know that there is a just God who, who even in this world is displaying elements of, of, of the, the judgment. And even this, we, we should be very clear, by the way, that just because Lazarus is poor and just because we find him in heaven, in the end does not mean that he is sinless. He, like everyone, has been born into sin and he, can, and he in his lifetime has sinned against God. And so the fact that there is suffering is no injustice at all. It is, of course, the natural and right thing in a fallen and sinful world that there ought to be suffering. But God in his goodness does not allow that suffering to be total. There are all these reminders of his goodness and the good things that he gives to us. Well, of course, the story moves quickly on from the situation in this life to the larger lesson that our situation here, materially, isn't really all that important beyond the few years that we have. There are good things here, and there can also be bad things. Some have more and some have less of those, of those two things, but it really doesn't matter all that much in eternity. Because the rich man is no better in hell for all of the comforts and luxuries that he had on earth. If anything, it makes his suffering worse. And the poor man is no, is no worse for all of his poverty and all of his suffering on earth. If anything, it makes his comfort in heaven all the greater. And so actually the question then, if there's any significance to the good things and the bad things that happen on this earth, the question is, what do you do with it? Because the problem with the rich man is that he wasn't just receiving these good things as good gifts from a good God to his glory and to his praise and to use them then as gifts to give. God himself, a communicative being, always giving of his good things to those around him. He didn't do that. Instead, he took these good gifts of God and made them to be a God. That was Jesus' point. He's trying to serve two masters, and he failed. And the one he chose when push came to shove was God money. So there was a significance to these good and bad things. It has to do with what we do with them. Now, I'd say the other thing, too. What about Lazarus? Just because he's poor doesn't mean inevitably that he's going to heaven. And this is the the case that Jesus is laying out here. But, you know, there are poor people that are going to hell. When they receive their bad things, when they receive poverty, when they receive some sort of disease, they don't respond in humility. They respond by shaking their fist. And they do what what Job's wife wrongly said that Job ought to do, which is to curse God and die. Unfortunately, there are many people you encounter that speak of some bad thing that happened to them as the reason why they hate God and will have nothing to do with his church. See, the bad things didn't profit them either. Good things sometimes don't profit people because they're not received the way they ought to be, and the bad things don't profit them either. Well, what we say is this life has both good things and bad. The only thing that matters is the way that you receive them, of course. But the next and more important point than that is that heaven is better than that. However good that we could possibly have things on earth, heaven is better. Now, I'll say this is not the focus in this passage. You know it's in hell. So, and thus even my mistake at the beginning of this, 
the, the focus is very much on the other place, but let us briefly just note a few things, a few simple observations from the information that we have. Verse 22, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Okay, what can we say? A, there is a heaven. Pretty simple. It's important, an exceedingly important thing to say in these days because the atheist, the militant atheist, wants to say that there is no afterlife. There certainly is. There certainly is one, and we can never, ever forget it. There is a heaven. And B, heaven is a place of comfort. Verse 25, but now he is comforted. Speaking of Lazarus, this is the situation, this is the summary of what happens in heaven. He is comforted. It's a place of comfort. You see, it begin, it's, it's all the way through. Lazarus dies, and that is the last suffering he ever has. Does he have to stumble his way and make it to, to heaven on his own? No. The angels come, and they take him. They escort him personally to heaven because God would not allow his saints have you in a moment of trouble to try to have to find a place, I suppose. He sends his angels to go get this man. He is immediately comforted. Immediately comforted. And he is further than comforted in this place. You know, this is the same word that we have from John fourteen sixteen, And I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter. Comforter. It's the way it is in the AV, and it's probably, there's a good reason why it also says helper in the New King James. Both of them are true, but I think in our context, we should think of the Holy Spirit as the supreme comforter. And that's what Jesus says, it's good that I go, because I'm going to send this comforter. Well, it's even better, as Paul points out, even better in heaven, a place that is entirely given over to comfort of every kind. There is a heaven. Heaven is a place of comfort, and heaven, see, heaven is eternal. A rich man just wants water. You know, when he, he asks, he's asking, but it entails having Lazarus having to leave heaven and come into hell, however briefly. So let me do, we're just, we're taking some, some implications here, okay? So he, the request is, send Lazarus to help me out just a little bit. But that's not possible because in verse 26 he says, Between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Okay? So even if theoretically, and I just say, you say this is silly, who would ever want to leave heaven? But you understand there are some people who preach some pretty silly things and some very wrong theology. And let me just say, You can't leave heaven, okay? No one's going to want to. And thankfully, there's no possibility of ever doing. There's no possibility of doing anything that would ever get you from heaven into hell. There's a great gulf fixed. It is a done deal. When you're in eternity, your your fate is sealed for the worse, of course, in hell, but for the better in heaven. And you can be absolutely certain there will never be a sense in which the angels had, you know, as in, in, the, in the beginning of time, as they were made and they were on probation. And if they slip up, then they're going to fall. That's not the case with us in eternity. There's a great gulf fixed. And even if we wanted to go to hell, we couldn't. It's eternal. Okay, so there is a heaven. Heaven is a place of comfort. Heaven is eternal. And D, that comfort, the, the comfort of heaven is in every way. 
Again, just as a, a minor example, it's a, a trivial one, but you, you, let's, let's milk it for all of its worth. Let's see all the implications. As a minor example, Lazarus must have had access to water for the rich man to suggest it. Right? Uh, he, Abraham doesn't say, oh, Lazarus can't do that because he doesn't have any water either. doesn't say that. Of course, we know that heaven is a place of wonderful material comfort. And there's not a single thing that anyone has ever had in this world that will ever hold a candle to what is available to the saints in heaven. Every good thing that can be imagined is ours, tangible as well as spiritual. But ye, the essence of that comfort is surely in terms of relationships. Notice what it is called, Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom. Be this place of such close fellowship. You're reminded of, of in the, the Gospel of John and how the beloved disciple, how does he describe himself? The one who leaned on Jesus' bosom. He has that relationship. He has that close of fellowship with the Son of God that he is in his bosom. And he himself, you see, the Lord Jesus himself, how, does he, how is he described in John chapter 1? He's the one in the bosom of the Father. You see this close, this place of intimate, close fellowship? That's what heaven is called then, the, of Abraham's bosom. And in speaking particularly of the covenant people of, of God, and we understand, of course, that Jesus, for a good, a good reason, doesn't use himself. It doesn't say, in, you know, this is a place of my bosom, but this is... This is by implication, of course, ultimately where that's going. If it's a place where we get to have wonderful, intimate fellowship with Father Abraham, how much more so than are we going to have with the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the ultimate thing of these things. We'll be in close fellowship with one another, close fellowship with all the patriarchs and prophets and all the ones we've ever looked to as our examples in this world, and ultimately and, and finally Christ himself. That's the essence of that comfort. Abraham's bosom. Well, so we say that this life has good things and bad. That's, that's lesson, lesson one. We see that. Lesson two is that heaven is much better than anything on earth. And lesson three, hell is worse. And we have to consider now the doctrine of hell as it's taught here. And we're going to spend more time on this. And again, I want us to think of both the statements that are said and also the implications of what is being said in all this. A, the most simple point, there is a hell. Verse 22, so it was a beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried and being in torments in Hades. Simple point, hell exists. Jesus certainly believed it and taught it without the slightest hesitation or embarrassment. It's just a plain fact. In fact, all the more real, the fact that he doesn't go into great elaborate detail to explain, oh, by the way, there's this place called hell. Just immediately says, the rich man was, that was died and was buried and being in torments in Hades with no, with, no, with no further elaboration. You know, some of the most important and basic things in life are the things that require no further explanation at all. They're, they're, we just know them to be true. They are just the, the, the pervasive background of our lives. And, and no one bothers to have to give an elaborate argument for their existence because everyone knows it's true. That's just how basic hell was in the belief system of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hell exists. 
B, hell is a place of torment. Again, I'm embarrassed to have to say this, but let me just say there are those who have used this as a proof text, this story as a proof text to teach the opposite of a proper doctrine of hell. And so we need to make sure that we see the true things in here. Well, verse 23, And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. And, and once again... <laughs> The, the reality of this comes so hits us so hard because he doesn't doesn't go to some like some bad playwright trying to explain and there is a flame you cannot see the flame but I will explain to you the flame because there is a flame and he says this flame the one that you know about the one that you see the one that is so obvious because I'm in this flame and I'm in torment in it. And the remedy which he so desperately wants is just enough water to cool his tongue. You know, it's not, some people, it's not a glass of water. He's not asking for a glass of water to drink in order to quench his thirst. That ambition is too high for him. All he is asking is for, for, for someone to dip his finger in the water and to cool down his tongue because his tongue, you see, is engulfed in the fire. You see this, this digital thermostat here, a thermometer. It tells you how cold something is and, and how warm it is. And if you put that to his tongue, this, this number would be off the charts, wouldn't it? His tongue is in the fire. And he's simply asking for a little bit of water to cool it down a few degrees. That's the extent of his torment. That's, by the way, in exact accordance with James 3.6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. That would seem to be quite literally true in in hell. Now, the question is, is this something that God does? Does he actually send people to a place of torment? And the answer is yes. Yes, he does. Matthew 8.29 And suddenly they cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The devils have no problem believing that that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to torment them. they, They know that. The only question is, are you doing it even before the time? We know the time is coming that you have appointed in which you are going to torment us forever. Are you doing it before the time? It's the same word. Same word in Revelation 20.10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We shrink from such things. We rightly shrink from such things. Who wants to think about them? The word of God draws our attention to them. We have to see them. Revelation 14.9. Whoever worships the beast... Where it does it meaning not, not Christ, but worships the world system, worships mammon probably. He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which has poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. You see that? This is not something that is entirely away from God. Yes, it's away from his favorable presence. 
But this is all being done in the presence of the Lamb, under his specific supervision. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. It's all the same word, that word torment. Hell is a place of torment. A, there is a hell. B, hell is a place of torment. C, hell is involuntary, inescapable, and eternal. Involuntary, inescapable, and eternal. Again, I should not even have to say this, but some have made it necessary. Verse 26 again. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Okay, there you are. If you're in hell, you cannot get out. It is not a matter of the only reason why you're in hell is because you want to be in hell. And no one ever wants to leave hell. Except those who would, those who would want to, it is impossible for them because there's a great gulf fixed and there is no way. It is involuntary. It is inescapable. And it is eternal. Verse 30, he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he's well aware that he cannot escape. Why didn't he just ask the question? Why didn't he just ask? They say, let me go. Because he knew good and well. Knew good and well that, yeah, maybe the Lord would raise from the dead one of his saints. Possibly he'd do that. He knew good and well that he has been condemned to hell forever. That is part of the package. That is just as much as part of, of hell as the flame itself is the knowledge that you will never, ever get out. That's surely known immediately to the damned just as much as men know now in this world that this life will end. Do you, you know that, right? Is anyone under the idea that your life in this world will con- continue forever? Is anyone so deluded? Not at all. You know it almost inherently and immediately. And so it is with those in hell. It's eternal. Involuntary, inescapable, eternal. D. And this is worse. This, this one shook me just a little bit. Hell is a place without mercy. Hell is a place without mercy. You know, I am not aware of a single place in all of Scripture where someone in sincerity comes before God and begs for mercy. Sincerity and, and, and fullness of him begs for mercy and does not receive it. The worst of sinners does that. We know precisely from the example of the tax collector praying, and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's the worst of the worst, and God has mercy on him. Paul, who is the chief of sinners, and God has mercy on him. And there's not a single instance from beginning to end in which a, a, even the very worst comes before God and begs for mercy and sincerity. No instance in which they're ever turned away or denied. Let me, let me say this. Even the demons. Remember that story I just mentioned? In Matthew 8, when the demons say, have you come to torment us before the time? They know it's coming. Have you come to do it, please? And you remember what they say. They begged him, and this is Luke 8, 31. They begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain, so they begged him that he would permit them to enter them. You know what happened? He permitted them. These were his sworn enemies. 
They asked for mercy from God and they received it because here and now is the place and time of mercy. You know, those, those demons were asking quite a bit. What this man is asking in hell is not much. It is not much at all. When, and, and see, this is the thing. This is, it's not an enemy that's asking. He's not asking his, it's not a, a sworn enemy speaking to one another. He is asking his father, Abraham, his father, Abraham, because that is what he is. He was one of his great-grandchildren. He's asking for mercy. It's a minor thing, and he doesn't get it. Okay? So when this man asks for such a small thing from his father, Abraham, and does not get it, it can mean only one thing, that he has gone beyond all possibility, not merely of escape, but of the slightest mercy. Because hell is a place without mercy. Now all of this confirms what we already know. We don't get our theology from relying only on on parables. I don't think it's merely a parable in any case. But even if it were, we wouldn't get it from, from just this one place. Because such things point out and illustrate what is taught elsewhere. None of this is new. All of this is taught in other parts of Scripture, and it's certainly taught in our Westminster Standards. Westminster Confession 32.1, the the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls which neither sleep, die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. In larger catechism 29, what are the punishments of sin in the world to come? The punishments of sin in the world to come are everlasting separation from the comfortable presence of God and most grievous torments in soul and body without intermission in hellfire forever. And so it goes on. Larger catechism 86, larger catechism 89. You can read those on your own. This is what is taught in scripture. None of this is new. It just confirms what we already know. Now, all those things I say, they're pretty, all those things are very fearful. The fact that there is a hell, that hell is a place of torment, that is involuntary, inescapable, eternal, and that worse is a place entirely without the mercy of God. That's bad enough. But let me say there's, there's maybe even something a little bit more fearful than that. F, the damned did not expect it. Okay, they didn't expect it. He said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Why did he make that request? Is it because he thinks there's some new item of information that he can add that was previously unknown? Like, for instance, that there is a hell? No, that's clear. That is so clear. It's all over Scripture. That hell is a terrible place? They should know that. That's also perfectly clear. They knew that all from Scripture. What then? What is the new piece of information that he would have? He thinks that his brothers absolutely need to hear? It's that people like them actually go there. That's the new piece of information. He knew there was a hell. He knew it was, it was bad. But he just didn't expect to find himself there, you see. He didn't expect to, to go to hell. 
He expected to be in heaven. And this was the surprise. It's a terrible surprise, isn't it? Well, what can we say in the light of such terrible things? These are good lessons for us, don't you think? There are good things and bad things in this world. And what matters is the way that we deal with them, the way that we respond to them, the way that we use them, either to bring us closer to God or further away from him. And however bad or however good, heaven is much, much better. And hell is far, far worse. And application number one is that we should be frightened away from hell. People make fun of hell and brimstone sermons as if by merely saying that, that they somehow wave a wand and say that it's illegitimate and wrong. Well, if you want to wave that that wand, you go pick that up and put it in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ because he used those words and he preached many a sermon just like this one on hell. He spoke of that that subject uh, at least as much as any other subject he ever spoke on. And the point is, the point is that you need to be frightened away from it, okay? That's a very legitimate thing. The the only people who think it's illegitimate to to, to preach on hell are those who don't really believe it exists or want to imagine it doesn't. I wonder what the preferred preachers for that rich man and his family might have been. I wonder what sort of synagogue that they would have chosen to have gone if they had a choice. I'm not... They probably did, actually. We know they were both Sadducees and Pharisees, and there's probably another group as well. And you could kind of take your choice between what sort of teaching that you prefer to receive. And personally, I think you probably picked the side who, who, who didn't talk a lot about hell. I wonder if that would still be his choice today. We need to be frightened away from hell. One thing that he would do, you know, he doesn't say, you know, oh, um, uh, give the beach house to, to Steve and, and make sure that Bob doesn't have any part of the will. He doesn't care. It's not even a thought. He doesn't say, I'll give them some business advice. He doesn't care. The one thing that he would have them to do were he able to speak to them from the grave is to avoid hell at all costs. That is his priority for them. Now, you you understand, this rich man and many others like him, he's still in hell. There's still no drop of water. There's still no mercy. Probably his brothers are there too. It's too late for them. His word to you, okay? So imagine that you're here. You're not a Christian. You're not a believer. You haven't put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you're not going to listen to me because I'm just a minister. Well, maybe, let's imagine that one of your friends is telling you from beyond, here's the message, avoid hell at all costs. You cannot serve two masters. That's always a problem, isn't it? The problem is not that I say, not the people, maybe there's a few that say, I will never, ever, ever, ever believe. I will never, ever, ever become a Christian. You know what brings people to hell? I'll do it tomorrow. Right now my priority is this in my life. Because this in my life is actually my God. They don't say that, but that's what it is. And this whole story is a, is a reiteration, is an illustration of the way things end up when you have two things vying for, for supremacy in your life. 
I don't need to define what that other thing may be. It's anything that's keeping you from faith in Jesus Christ. There's always another day. There's always another day until you're in hell. And then, then your advice to anyone like you is, is just to scream out in the loudest possible way to avoid this place, lest they come to this place of torment. You know, it's interesting, in Matthew 3, 7, John the Baptist, when he sees many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's almost as if he's saying, what are you doing here? Who, who would have mercy on you, and why would you listen if someone actually came and, and warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, actually, he does go on to and baptize it. He doesn't say, no, you can't come. He's just pointing out what he is, and he's amazed that someone has, has given them that warning that's been conveyed to them and that they've listened. Well, that's a gift, isn't it? Somebody gave those Pharisees and those Sadducees a great gift to, to warn them to flee from the wrath to come, and they came to the right place. They came to hear the word of God from John and ultimately to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a very, very legitimate motivation, brothers and sisters, Okay? Ultimately, wouldn't we love it if everything we ever did was out of a pure, unselfish love for God? But lots of people are frightened into the kingdom. And they realize just how terrible hell is. So be frightened away from hell. Secondly, be attracted to heaven. Because it goes the other way too. Some, some people, maybe that's the thing that, that particularly God uses to reach them, is that they're so afraid of going to hell that they will do anything to escape it, and they come running into the arms of Jesus Christ. Wonderful, do that. Other people are so enraptured and so attracted by the beauty and the glory of heaven that that's what brings them into faith of Jesus Christ. And that, too, is a wonderful thing. There are people here who lack comfort in this world. There are people here who do not have many good things and who are suffering. And the idea of being in a world that is designed from beginning to end to be all about wonderful, pure comfort, not empty comfort, not temporary comfort, but the deepest and most real sort of comfort imaginable in in every way, body and soul. That's a wonderful, beautiful thought, and you ought to be attracted to that. You, you ought to say, indeed, that the afflictions of this world are light and passing in comparison to the glories and the, and the joys of heaven. And you ought to, therefore, be attracted to heaven. You know, Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And I ask my children, it's a good one, what does that, children, what does that imply? And he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. What does that imply? It means there is a time when you can't seek him. Your opportunities have gone. That, that's the implication. So rather than you should all the more do it the moment you have opportunity. Okay? Be frightened away from hell. Be attracted to heaven. Third, use material things well. 
Let me ask you another question. You know if the rich man were to come back, you know for certain that the first thing he would do is put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, be right with God, and, and be saved. That would be priority number one. Then, he's sitting on all this money there in his estate, and there is Lazarus. Maybe he's, well, let's, let's just imagine he could rewind to where that, what is he going to do? I'm guessing, I'm guessing that he'd probably give him some food and water. And I'm guessing that he would use the good things that God has given in various ways to the glory of God. He would be using them as they were designed. God has put them into his hand, and these are good gifts to be used for the glory of God and for the good of his people. And I think that, therefore, we should use our material things well. Again, it's the same story of what has previously been said in in this very chapter, speaking of the unjust steward. Now, we know there's, there are aspects of this thing that we don't directly apply, but the basic idea is, look, even this, 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 this pagan, this unjust steward who is getting fired, he knows well enough to use the things that are in his hand temporarily to get to buy him something in eternity. You guys need to wake up and figure out the same thing. This is Jesus speaking, not me. He's saying, they're more shrewd than you are. You need also, we need also to be shrewd with the things that in the moment, at the time, are in our hands because they flow so quickly. And our opportunity to do do good with them just, just goes. We need to use our material things well. Fourthly and finally, I would say we ought to realize the power of the ordinary means of grace. Realize the power of the ordinary means of grace. Because here's, a, here's that wonderful story, you know, because people all the time said, look, if I only saw a sign from heaven, I would believe. Is, do you think that's true? Maybe. What, they, maybe somebody who's really bold would go as far as to say, if someone were to be raised from the dead, I would believe. Is that really true? The answer is no. The answer is no. Because uh, Abraham has said this absolutely Okay, if they did not, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, meaning the word of God, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Amazing thing. Amazing thing. Now, we know that's true, by the way. Did all the Jewish leaders all of a sudden start believing on Jesus after he rose the other Lazarus from the dead? Remember that? Funny how they have the same name. That other Lazarus? No, they didn't. They tried to kill him, too. Okay? They didn't become believers just because they saw someone raised from the dead. So what he's saying is, not just, and it's interesting to me because the answer could have been, oh, rich man, I'm, you know, that's just not the way. It probably would work, but that's just not the way that God deals with things, and, and so we're not going to do it. No, he says it's not going to work. Okay? It's not going to work. They have something that is more powerful, more efficacious, and that is the word of God itself. And if that doesn't work, that's it. That's the end of the line. There's nothing further that could possibly convince someone beyond the word of God. Brothers and sisters, that is so wonderful. That means we never need to go into a situation and say, I have got to convince somebody. I've got to have the arguments in order to convince them. And if I'm not convincing, then they'll go to hell. No. You have the word of God. And all we have to do is faithfully convey it. Whether we hand out a tract, an invitation to to hear the word of God as we did yesterday. As we give our testimonies. as As we speak our presentation of the gospel. In whatever way, all we have to do is hand them the one thing that is so powerful to do it. Realize the power of the ordinary means of grace. You have something better 
than the greatest miracle. You have something even more powerful than where someone to be raised from the dead in front of them. We should therefore use and have respect for these means as God has given. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful indeed that you have so spoken to us by something even more powerful than the greatest and most notable miracles ever, and that is your own inspired and inerrant word of God. And we know, Lord, it is powerful enough to bring people from the dead, that you can speak to them and bring them to spiritual life in Christ, and we pray that you would do that. Heavenly Father, how we pray that we would learn our lessons from this great story of, of Lazarus and the rich man, things, Lord, that that anyone in eternity would wish us to know and to act upon. That yes, there are both good and bad things in this world, but the, the question is how we respond to them and whether these things are moving us closer or pulling us away from the Lord, whether the good or the bad. And that, Lord, that heaven is very real. and It is a wonderful place of comfort. And we pray, Lord, that everyone here might indeed see its wonderful shores. But on the other hand, that hell is so terrible that we should do everything, anything, to avoid it. And how thankful, Lord, that the solution to this is not a far off, but rather, Lord, it is simply to do the thing that these proud Pharisees were so unwilling to do, which is to bow the knee and to receive Christ in faith. We pray, Lord, that all would be brought to this through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.